Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're continuing on in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 9, and we'll be starting in verse 23. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Chuck, please. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for uh, your blessings. Thank you for Mark uh, being here with us, bringing this lesson to him. We pray that you would inspire his words and burn them into our hearts and uh, make us conscious of what these ideas are. Lord, as we think about our situation It's not so much different from the one where uh, Paul and the Hebrews were talking in a land at war, an occupied territory of its time, where uh, Jesus grew up and lived his whole life. And uh, we think of our own situation in the falsehood that surrounds us. And Lord, we do need your word. So we pray for the inspiration of these words. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Chuck. And welcome, Mark. Thank you. It's great to be back with everyone. We're down to the last paragraph of the ninth chapter of Hebrews. The entire gospel is found here in the ninth chapter. And recall that this writer is a Judean uh, by nationality, but a Greek speaker, someone who lives uh, far away from Palestine. And he's writing to a synagogue community uh, a subset of a synagogue community who are believers in, in uh, Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah, but who are now facing uh, tough decisions as they have persecution, uh, serious persecution to the point of death, uh, looking them right in the eye, and they've got to decide whether to uh, continue to publicly pronounce Jesus as Messiah or just to kind of sit back and become a nondescript member of their synagogue community. So our writer has been persuading them with argument after argument after argument that that they shouldn't hitch their wagon to an age that is on the verge of being ended abruptly with a fiery judgment. They need to hitch their wagon to the new eternal age of Messiah, which is just beginning. And so he's been using imagery here in the ninth chapter of the Day of Atonement, the holiest day on the Judean-Israelite calendar, where the high priest goes in to make offerings for the people's sins. And uh, this imagery is continuing here as we pick up in verse 23. Let's read uh, verse 23 through the end of the chapter, please. 
It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all for the end of the ages to do away with sin by sacrifices of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Great, thank you. All right, so he is speaking of the physical temple in Jerusalem here in verse 23 where he's talking about the copies of the heavenly realities, the bronze altar, the bronze sea or laver, the golden candlestick, the showbread, the golden incense altar, and the mercy seat and Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. These are all cleansed by the blood of innocent animals. But if these are just shadows of the heavenly or spiritual realities, then the spiritual realities are by necessity cleansed by better sacrifices than these. If we have new listeners, I will repeat the idea of a type in the Bible. A type and an antitype are two different realities, a physical reality that is usually in what we call the Old Testament or the, uh, the Hebrew and Aramaic scriptures from Genesis through Malachi. It might be a person, place, or a thing, and it has a spiritual meaning. There is a higher meaning to these physical events and people and places in the Old Testament that are normally revealed to us in what we call the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation. Our author here is explaining one set of those, all of the furnishings and whatnot of the tabernacle originally built at Mount Sinai, built up into a temple by Solomon, destroyed in 586, and then rebuilt 70 years later, kind of halfway, and then that second temple underwent a major renovation under Herod the Great. I'm not sure it was even quite finished when it was destroyed in 70 AD. It had been refurbished for two generations at the time this letter was written. So in the old age, the old covenant, we found these animal sacrifices. In the new age, and the new covenant, we find a better sacrifice, which of course is the blood of Christ, the high priest offering his own blood, which only has benefit because of the perfect life that he lived as a Judean, following the law of Moses, completely, totally, without failing, which was completely impossible for any other human being. His life, his perfect life under the law of Moses, is what made his blood this better sacrifice than the animal sacrifices of the old age. 
the blood could take care of sin according to the law of Moses, but there was no provision for cleansing the conscience of defiled men and women under the law of Moses. And any true student of the law realized that they needed something more they in order to achieve a a clean conscience they had to have something more than the law provided for they had to have messiah and that's why throughout the history of israel we see a a tiny righteous remnant actively searching for god's messiah uh, whereas the vast majority are are content uh, to deceive themselves into thinking that they are following the law so well that they deserve a place in God's presence for all of eternity. This is all part of this ongoing contrast our, our writer is making between the old age and the new age here. And in verse 24, he develops this. It's not a holy place made with hands as existed, of course, in the temple, which is only a copy of the true one that Christ has entered, but into heaven itself to appear for us now in the presence of God. I think we are all of us handicapped when we hear the word heaven. I'm not sure what all of you have, but I grew up with a connotation of, of kind of floating on clouds and having a white feathery suit with wings and playing a golden harp and you're just kind of flitting around there forever and ever and ever and that's heaven uh, and a lot of movies reinforce this sadly much of what we have been taught in our modern churches about heaven and hell are the product of medieval uh, catholic attempts to dominate and intimidate the masses of europe and um, they're not really biblical in many ways at all. I think it's helpful to substitute for the word heaven the spiritual realm, the realm in which God exists, in which he existed before he created the universe and time. It is the spiritual realm. It's something that is not physical it does not have dimensions. It does not exist in time. It is the spiritual realm. And God fills that spiritual realm. But the great marvel of the Bible is that God created the universe not just because he was bored, but he created it to be a perfect home for man which was his eternal purpose to create human beings who could collectively become a people for his own possession and collectively could become the perfect bride for his son. And this is the eternal purpose of God. He created the universe so that man could dwell there, and he created man so that he could dwell in men's hearts and we hear this taught by Jesus in the gospels it's written 
in bold almost right at the end of Revelation. Behold, the dwelling place of God is now is with men, and yet uh, very few religious teachers or entities uh, really catch this. They're still focused on heaven being way far away from the earth, and it's a place that we go when we die to get away from our troubles, and the whole purpose of, of God's plan is to take us to this faraway place, heaven. But, but that's not what the Bible says anywhere. It's not the theme of the Bible that exists consistently from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. This writer is certainly aware of God's eternal purpose, and he is telling us that the, the true temple is made of human beings who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ so as to become heaven, in a sense, to become the dwelling place of God. In this particular passage, he's not specifically teaching that concept, but he's talking about Christ going directly into the presence of the Father to make this offering uh, once and for all. He hasn't gone there over and over again as the old high priest did every year. He hasn't suffered repeatedly since the world's foundation. But, verse 26, he has been made known once for all at the consummation of the ages is what my version says, to do away with sin by his own sacrifice. All of the imagery of the old tabernacle and temple was pointing towards the future spiritual reality that Christ dwells in Christians, and we are joined to him in the sense of a husband and wife, the two shall be one flesh. We are the body. He is the head. The Bible teaches this in several different ways. This once for all is quite interesting, of course, because our dispensational Zionist friends are completely consumed with the imminent uh, second coming of Christ and the rapture and so on. But this is a good point to remind all of our listeners that all of the prophets of Israel saw one coming of Messiah. And that coming is a mixture of redemption, of bringing Israel back to life spiritually, and that's mixed with a horrible, terrible, bloody judgment. You can read any of the prophets. You can even read Moses. And they know a Messiah is coming, and he's going to uh, separate the grain from the chaff. He's going to burn up the chaff and, and all that. He's going to prune the uh, vineyard. He's going to throw all the uh, unfruitful branches into a fire. This is all one event horizon to the Old Testament prophets.
And so our writer is being consistent with all of those prophets, which his audience was extremely familiar with when he says that Messiah has been made known once for all at the end of the ages or consummation of the ages. Our King James translators insisted on translating that Greek word eon as world, which has helped our dispensational friends to no end with their obsession with the end of the planet and the universe. But that word does not mean world or the planet Earth. It means the age, the end of the ages, the consummation of the ages. The fact that our dating, our calendar started over when Christ came, give or take a year or two, gives testimony to this fact that the the old age ended and the new age is beginning. This was so important in God's purpose before he even created the universe that everything is centered around the coming of Messiah as a real physical man to real physical Palestine to accomplish this once and for all cleansing by virtue of his sinless life under the law of Moses. Everything just starts over at that time. So we could go on and on with this, but it's hard to place too much emphasis on the significance here in verse 26, where it is talking about Christ being made known once for all at the consummation of the ages. Now, even though he just said he came once and for all, in verse 26, down in verse 28, it's saying that he is also going to appear a second time for those who are looking for him. So this is, uh, I guess you could say it's an apparent contradiction, but this second time is not referring to this end of the universe event that our dispensational friends are so obsessed with, but it is referring to the Day of Atonement where the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. He's only allowed to do that on that one day. He makes his offerings, and all of Israel is gathered out in the courtyard to see if he makes it out alive. Josephus records for us that they had bells. There were bells on his garment, uh, so you could hear, listen, if he was still moving. No other priest was allowed in to the holy place while this was going on. And they also, according to Josephus, tied a rope around the high priest's ankle, which went all the way out through the holy place, out into the courtyard, so that if God did strike him dead, they would be able to drag his body out without going in to the Holy of Holies to retrieve his corpse. So they, they all waited every year expectantly, knowing that their continued ability to pray to Yahweh, to ask favor of Yahweh, to present sacrifice to Yahweh, all depended on the success of the ceremony 
of the Day of Atonement. So they all, all Israel gathered expectantly for the high priest to emerge. And this is what our writer has in mind, I believe, here in verse 28. Those who look for him, the true Israel. Um, not not the uh, counterfeit Israel that existed in the Sanhedrin uh, at the time or the one that we have today, but the true Israel were looking for him to appear a second time without sin unto salvation. When that high priest came out of that outer curtain, the people knew that their sins were taken care of for another year. When Christ, as the high priest, finished making uh, his offering before the throne of God, sin was taken care of, not just for a year, but forever. It was completely taken care of. The conscience could be cleansed. All of his people's sins could be taken care of forever. And so that's what's in view here. And I believe this is specifically referring to the imminent parousia of Christ, which was his promised uh, coming in judgment upon the Judean nation for their many, many, uh, almost numberless crimes, insults, and abuse uh, that they had given him and his disciples ever since he appeared. And it really goes back way before that. (laughs) They had been corrupt and spiritually dead for generations, even before Christ was born. But, uh, Mark, uh, yes. In this verse 28, I'm reading from a Greek text, but for the hearing of the sins of many will be seen a second time by those awaiting him apart from sin or salvation through faith. Could that not mean that that is the the necessary second meeting we all have with Christ at our death? Uh, Is this uh, possible that this is referring to uh, each person's second meeting with Christ? Uh, Well, it... It could be, and in some places in this letter, that's definitely being referred to. But the thing that's special here is that salvation, they don't get salvation until he makes his presence known this second time. And it's, it's, it's not like a second coming in the sense that verse 26, he has come once for all. This is just the very end of his first coming, okay? There's the age, the old age is ending, the new age is dawning. They overlap by roughly 70 years here. And this is the final event, so to speak, of this coming once for all at the consummation of the ages. The, and, and you see, the salvation is not delivered until this final event of the advent of Messiah. So, if if what you're suggesting were the case, no one could 
receive assurance of salvation until they physically die and until they pass through uh, a judgment of some sort. And, and this is a popular teaching with many religious groups today, and uh, I was taught this for most of my life. Um, but it's a, not a very comforting thing. We have a lot of people who have been Christians their whole lives, and they're terrified, absolutely terrified to physically die because they still don't think they have been given the gift of salvation. They still don't think they've been worthy. I mean, there's a lot of, of reasons uh, for it. But do you, do you see the point there? It's a, is that when he appears this second time in verse 28, he is delivering the salvation to the remnant of Israel. Or have I just confused it even worse? One or the other. <laughs> uh, well, again, we are going to see a, a couple places in here where it would apply to the end of each believer's physical life. But in this case, he's still tied to this imagery of the Day of Atonement and that Day of Atonement, when that high priest would emerge, I believe correlates perfectly to Jesus' promised coming in judgment against Jerusalem and the Judean leadership that he predicted over and over again, you know, Matthew 23, Matthew 24, Luke 21. You know, he, he talked about this a lot, and his disciples continued to talk about it after Christ's ascension. And so it takes a little bit of study. I encourage anyone interested in this to continue to uh, to look into this. But I believe that this is talking about the parousia of Christ, which was the fulfillment of all of those prophecies and, and nearly all of his parables uh, as well about the vineyard, the husbandman, the wedding feast that who was invited would come to. All of those parables are pointing to the imminent destruction of Judea and the Judean nation for rejecting their Messiah. But again, what was don't, that word? Parousia of Christ? Parousia, yeah. That's, the King James translators translated that as coming or occasionally second coming. But it has a formal meaning in the Greek. There was a powerful person could make his presence known or make a formal visit. And so the literal translation of that word is presence, not coming. But it didn't fit with the preconceived ideas of the King James translators. And, well, they had borrowed a lot from their predecessors who also had preconceived ideas. So they made it be translated coming, but that's not exactly what it means. It's really the formal making making your presence felt as a important person. And, of course, this is what Christ did in A.D. 70 when he used the global army of the Roman Empire 
to represent all of the nations being gathered to Jerusalem to execute his judgment on this nation for their complete disbelief and opposition to God's eternal purpose. We talk about this from time to time. There's so many passages in the New Testament that talk about this that have been kind of whitewashed over or mistranslated or ignored. So we, we do talk about this from time to time. But oh, we skipped over verse 27, which is the one that Chuck is thinking of. So uh, I meant to go back and grab that here. It is appointed to men once to die and after this judgment. So this is one of the places where he is talking about this. But he's using this as an example for what Christ did in verse 28. And they're, they're not necessarily saying the same thing, but 27 serves men die once. Christ died once or was offered once. And he alone amongst all of the Israelites who ever lived could demand a place in God's presence forever by perfect adherence to the law. So he had absolutely nothing to fear through judgment after his death when he went into the throne room of God. He was there in all perfection and of course, our writers already explained how he's opened all the barriers by going, by living this sinless life, by going in and presenting his life and death as the sacrifice. He has opened the way for us to be in God's presence, which then enables God to dwell in our hearts as he had intended from before the foundations of the universe. So. It's a little uh, convoluted there how how all of these ideas uh, tie together. It would have made a lot more sense to the original audience because of their uh, obsession with the Day of Atonement ceremony every year, which for us is merely an academic curiosity. It was their most important day of the year. All right, any other questions or comments or uh, demands for... Uh, Unconfusion after that. <laughs> that would help a little bit. Um, my main uh, thing that hit me when you were talking, Mark, is that uh, you said that you know the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, didn't provide a way for the cleansing of the conscience. And the New Covenant is basically summed up, and I think this whole chapter is summed up in that it provided a way to cleanse your conscience through Jesus. And that was just overriding my thoughts the whole time you went through that when you said that. It's just like everything is pointing to Jesus was necessary to cleanse our consciences. And I, I really appreciate that point you made. Yeah, it, it's helped me a lot. It, it calls to mind David's psalm where after he's committed the crime of murder and adultery, he's begging God to create in me a clean heart, O oh God. He had undoubtedly offered all of the sacrifices he could under the law, but it wasn't enough. He needed God's intervention, you know, to to create this new, this clean heart, a clean conscience there, just as you said. And 
This also calls to mind the promise in Jeremiah 31:31, where God would put a new heart into his people uh, when Messiah came, when the new age dawned. So thank you for that remark. Yes, and thank you for the follow-up, because that even helps me a lot more. Appreciate that. Thank you. All right, anything else? All right, well, we will charge forward into Chapter 10 next time, Lord willing, and he's still continuing on. Uh, He's kind of tying a lot of things together here in Chapter 10, and again, using the old physical aspects of the old age to teach the spiritual realities of the new age. And, of course, then he's going to, as we roll into chapter 11, we have a hall of fame of those folks in Israel's history who could have absolute confidence in the existence of unseen spiritual things and concepts. We call it faith. But what the author's really getting at is having confidence in the reality of the unseen spiritual things is way more important than just the physical things of the temple and the priesthood and all of that. So that's what we have to look forward to. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.